This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A maid meticulously dusts a beautiful wood-framed full-length mirror. It's a strange fixture to be found in a manager's office. But this was Marilyn Monroe's mirror when she used to stay at the hotel in the 1960s. When Marilyn checked in, the staff would bring this mirror to her room. But once she died, it was hidden away. Here in the office, away from the public and nosy tourists, looky-loos who wanted any piece of the dead woman they could get. The maid is lost in her thoughts, thinking of something other than her mindless work. A piece of stray hair falls across her eyes, and she looks up in the mirror to wisp it aside. There's a blonde woman standing behind her. The maid jumps and apologizes. She turns around to get a better look at her. The blonde has an air of mystery, an ethereal glamour. When she turns around, the woman is gone. The maid's heart skips a beat. She looks back in the mirror. Suddenly, the woman is in front of her, looking through the mirror. The woman is stunning, but sad, haunted. The blonde reaches through the glass, begging the maid to come closer. Are you Marilyn? The maid leans in closer, enchanted by the hypnotic beauty. The ghostly specter of the bombshell nods and suddenly dissolves into a dark, tortured spirit, mouth gaping in horror. The maid is hypnotized by the whirlpool of darkness, the ghostly mouth, a spinning vortex of sadness and despair. The spirit reaches out through the mirror. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to one of Tinseltown's most glamorous and legendary hotels, the Hollywood Roosevelt, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Many of you have asked how you can support Haunted Places. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. The Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel first opened its doors in 1927 and has the honor of being the oldest continuously operated hotel in L.A. 
The hotel was constructed during what is known as the Golden Age of Architecture in Los Angeles. The lobby is a stunning example of Spanish colonial style, and its $2.5 million construction was financed by some of the day's biggest names, including Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. The hotel sits smack dab in the hustle and bustle of Tinseltown, and its dream location made it the perfect spot for the first two Academy Awards ceremonies held in the famed Blossom Ballroom. Perhaps this posh and star-studded locale, now home to some of Hollywood's chicest events, is what keeps these glamorous ghosts hanging around. A young girl and her brother splash each other in the clear, cool waters of the Hollywood Roosevelt Pool. A distracted father peers over his newspaper, lounging in the Roosevelt's chic signature cabana. He lowers his dark, horn-rimmed glasses and calls to his children, Caroline and Henry. It's time to eat, he says. They've been in there for hours. The siblings begrudgingly but obediently stop their revelry and climb out of the pool to their expecting father. He has a tray of food and motions to it, going back to the day's headlines. Caroline flops onto a pool chair and happily gobbles up some food. She <laughs> giggles at her little brother as he gets ketchup all over his face. Satisfied and blissfully exhausted from the relentless play and sunshine, Caroline's eyelids feel heavy. Surely she should jump back in the pool, but it just feels so nice in the cabana, with the breeze washing over her. Caroline drifts into a slumber. She dreams of swimming, of being a mermaid, of exploring coral reefs and handsome sailors who she waves to from mossy rocks and blue lagoons. When she wakes up, she's still by the pool, and it takes her a second to collect her bearings. She looks around. It's later in the day. The sun is setting, and the afternoon crowd has gone back to their rooms to shower and dress for dinner. Daddy? Caroline calls and groggily rubs her eyes. No one is there. Her brother Henry has also fallen asleep in the luxurious cabana. He blinks as Caroline snaps her fingers in his face to wake him up. Caroline asks where their father is. He seems to have disappeared. The children look around to see if he went to fetch a cocktail at the bar. It seems to be the siesta hour around here. No one in sight. Caroline tells Henry they should play in the pool. They have it to themselves. He reminds her in his stubborn and obedient way that they're not allowed to play in the pool by themselves. Caroline ignores him and jumps into the placid water. She surfaces and flips her hair up like a mermaid. Dad's not there, she matter-of-factly informs her brother and dives back under the water. Henry watches her, shivering. Caroline teases him and calls him a baby. She smiles and submerges herself again. Under the water, she twirls around, feeling light as a feather. She pretends she's the mermaid of her dreams. She smiles and waves up at the surface of the water, pretending she sees a sailor. Henry finally jumps in, and Caroline waves to him, happy he joined her. 
She flips her legs down toward the bottom of the pool, like a dolphin. She wants to impress him with what a good swimmer she is. The competent older sister. Caroline hears Henry calling her name, but she doesn't care. She's having a ball in her underwater dreamland. Something firm grabs her ankle and jerks her hard. She turns and sees Henry tugging at her. She looks at his tiny face. He's panicked. He shouldn't have jumped in the water. Caroline pulls him to the surface. She holds her little brother around the waist, and he grabs her neck tightly. Let go! She begs, trying to free herself from his grasp. But Henry is wild-eyed. He can't hear her. Caroline screams for their father, but no one is around. They're in the deep end. Caroline is struggling to tread water, carrying both of their weight. She tries to swim to the side of the pool, but Henry is thrashing. She screams for help at the top of her lungs, but she can barely get the words out. Her brother is squeezing her throat with a possessed strength in his tiny arms. Caroline is growing panicked too. She can't get Henry off her. And when she tries, he flails and whacks her in the nose. Droplets of blood seep through the pristine blue water. Henry is squeezing everything out of her. She feels exhausted, defeated. He's so heavy, so, so heavy. Like a bundle of bricks tugging her beneath the water. He climbs onto her shoulders now. The fight in her is lost as she pleads with a tired, distant voice. But it is drowned in the muted depths of the water. Henry kicks her in the face, but the pain feels distant and far away. She can feel the water in her lungs. Desperately, she grabs Henry's foot, but her hands are weak and can barely grip anything. She can't breathe. She can see the surface of the water, that small ball of light, almost orange as the sun sets. If she could only reach out and grab it, she closes her eyes and with one final surge of energy, kicks her legs toward the surface. Caroline opens her eyes. She can't believe it. A mermaid is swimming toward her. She smiles and waves back. She feels lighter now, and Henry finally let go of her. Caroline laughs and swims toward the mermaid. What a fright that had given her. Everything is okay now. Everything is fine. The operator answers serenely. How may I help you? The woman has her hair up in a crisp beehive and taps her nails on the desk of the Hollywood Roosevelt switchboard. Daddy? A young girl's voice is on the end of the line. I'm looking for my daddy. I I can't find my daddy. The operator apologizes and furrows her brow. The girl's father is not there. Hmm. The operator asks if the young girl is okay. Where is she? In her room? The girl informs the operator that she's in the lobby. The operator tells her to stay right where she is. 
She'll send a security guard to help her right away. The operator calls the lobby security guard, who is standing nearby, to go find the little girl before something bad happens to her. The security guard calls the operator back. They scoured the lobby area. There was no child anywhere in sight. The operator picks up the phone quickly, confused, nervous. Her hands are shaking at the thought that perhaps someone has harmed the child. Did you find my daddy? The girl was okay. No. The operator sighs and requests that the girl stay in one place. They're looking everywhere for her. The security guard expands a search. He goes to the Blossom Ballroom, to the restaurant. He even checks back behind the bar. The operator picks it up anxiously. The child screams at her. She wants to play. She wants her daddy. She calls the operator ugly. She says only an ugly person could not find her daddy. The operator, taken aback by the child's outburst, calls the security guard again and tells him that the girl is back by the phone. She's there. Just bring her to the front desk as quickly as possible. The security guard shakes his head. He informs her that that's impossible. But what do you mean? The operator doesn't understand. She just got off the phone with the child. The operator is pleading, the hair on her arms standing on end. She feels dizzy all of a sudden. There's no one on that phone, the security guard says slowly, because I've been standing right next to it. We'll hear more about the little girl who just wants to find her daddy after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Many visitors claim to have spotted the ghost of the drowned girl, Caroline, gallivanting through the halls of the Hollywood Roosevelt. She wears a blue dress and calls operators, demanding to play. <laughs> but if approached, she suddenly vanishes. Some have even claimed to see her brother, who drowned in the pool with her. One of the Roosevelt's engineers was working late at night when he saw a young boy playing in the jacuzzi. Disturbed that a child would be left unattended after pool hours, he looked frantically around for the child's parents. But the child was gone. There was no trace of wet footprints anywhere. Was he imagining things? Was this Caroline's brother? Maybe one day he'll resurface. After all, he wouldn't be the first spirit of the hotel to do so. You're sleeping soundly in room 928. You're deep in a dream, pleasant, unmemorable, detached from time and space. Suddenly, you feel something heavy press against you, a weight on your chest. You're having trouble catching your breath, as if 
life is being suffocated out of you. You can't move. The innocuous dream is turning into a nightmare. Your eyes fly open. Someone is on top of you. It's dark, but the moonlight streaming through the window is highlighting the silhouette of a man straddling you. His knees squeeze into your ribcage, pinning your arms against your body. You're being held down against your will. You squirm, you wriggle, but the weight is almost unbearable. Finally, you squeeze your arms tight to your body and slide them up slowly against you. You get your arms free. And just as soon as you go to push the man off of you, he disappears. Your head turns this way and that, but he's nowhere to be found. You sit there, panting. It felt so real. Your breath slows, and you inhale deeply several times. You tell yourself you must be imagining things as you close your eyes and go back to sleep. Something is watching you, boring into you. Your eyes fly open. The silhouetted man looms over you. He's standing, watching you sleep. This time you know you're not imagining things. You throw the sheets off and jump to the other side of the bed, squaring off with him. But as soon as you look at him directly, he disappears. You're left alone, standing foolishly at attention in the middle of the room. You survey left and right, on guard, waiting. You can feel the temperature of the room become increasingly warm. Sweat beads on your forehead and runs over your eyes. The heat is quickly becoming unbearable. The air is thick, almost humid. It makes your head dizzy, and the room feels smaller, as though the walls themselves are pushing in on you. Whatever is in here is trying to suffocate you with hellish temperatures. You splash your face in the bathroom with water, but you're growing delirious. You might faint. Your legs almost crumble as you sink onto the cool, tiled floor. You feel weak and shaky, as though you're losing possession of your own body. You start to crawl toward the exit. Each shuffle takes a gargantuan effort as the gravity of the room pulls you down, down enticing you with thoughts of a deep, long slumber. You reach the door and strain to reach for the handle, but just as your fingertips touch the hot metal, your body gives way and you collapse onto the carpet. As your body lays on the floor, sweat soaking through your pajamas, the heat starts to subside. The cool air is an incredible luxury and you lay there afraid that if you move, you'll lose this wonderful feel of relief. Then, you hear the soft sobbing coming from behind you. Your strength is gone, so you tilt your head to look and see the silhouetted figure seated in the corner chair. He appears almost docile now, sad even, 
With tremendous effort, you push yourself into a sitting position and face him. He looks up with a menacing grin. But there are tears running down his cheeks. He has a roguishly handsome face, and you can tell that there is something dark behind his eyes. He steps over to you and pins you to the ground. Your body can no longer put up a fight. Chains form around your wrists. And though you struggle against them and shout for help, the effort is futile. You know there is only one option, and you relent. You listen. The man talks to you. He tells you of his tormented life. He's a troubled man. He just wants to be heard. He wants an audience. Finally, he stands, walks toward the door, and calmly leaves the room. As you breathe a sigh of relief, the chains around your wrists disappear. A new energy fills your body, and you are pulled toward the man. Your feet, no longer under your control, follow him into the hall. He's out there, playing a trumpet, loudly, pacing back and forth. The darkness in him is gone. His steps are lively, full of a robust energy. Another guest pokes her head out, hair mussed and groggy-eyed. She watches as the trumpet-playing apparition marches past her. The woman faints. The trumpet-playing continues down the hall. More guests open the door and peek in the hallway. All of them freeze in fear. You run back into the room and dial up the front desk, knowing you sound crazy. The front desk attendant chuckles and calmly informs you that you just had the distinct honor of meeting screen legend Montgomery Clift. Montgomery Clift is one of the most frequently cited ghosts at the Hotel Roosevelt. His presence is described as belligerent, angry. He's known to touch people suddenly, take them by surprise with a hand on the shoulder or an arm around the waist. He's often spotted roaming hallways playing his noisy trumpet. By all accounts, Montgomery Clift was a tortured man. He had a dark side that belied his sunny, charismatic on-screen persona. He was given to bouts of heavy drinking. He was known to be an introspective, sensitive man that had self-destructive tendencies. And these tendencies often come out at the Roosevelt. He lived at the Hollywood Roosevelt for three months while he was shooting the classic film From Here to Eternity. He played his trumpet at night and told guests stories of his troubled childhood. Perhaps he lingers here because he feels at home, a place he can be seen and heard. But he was a sensitive man that at the end of the day just wanted to be seen and adored. Perhaps that person could be you. We'll have more stories from the famous hotel after this. Now, back to the story. My friend Karen and I are a little tipsy from a long night at the Hotel Roosevelt Bar. We're wandering back to our room 
when Karen turns to me, dragging her hand against the wall, absentmindedly. She says she's wide awake and in the mood to explore. I agree. After all, it's not every day we get to stay at a fancy place like this. The hotel is so luxurious, so delicious, we could wander its halls for hours. The hotel revelry is dying down. People are calling cars, stumbling back to the hotel rooms. Some alone, some with strangers. We duck down a hallway and find a dimly lit nook. We nestle in and take a few selfies. We can't help ourselves. It's so late at night, we look ridiculous, bleary-eyed. We try and explore some unknown corridors, unknown rooms. But many are locked, and we giggle as the weight of our shoulders fails miserably against the stubborn, secure doors. Then we come upon a beautiful arched doorframe, boasting a heavy-looking wood door. On the count of three, we heave ourselves against it and practically fall inside. We didn't think such an important-looking door would be open at this hour. I know this room. It's the legendary Blossom Ballroom. It's been restored so that it looks like it is outside of time and space, as if we are back at the Academy Awards of 1929. Karen laughs and preens glamorously, pretending she's an old Hollywood starlet. I wander the outskirts of the room, admiring the stunning architecture and elegant sconces. Every detail in here is designed to perfection. But something feels wrong here. The air is somehow oppressive, and I can't shake the feeling of being watched. Being watched by thousands of eyes. I'm flooded with a sense of guilt. We aren't supposed to be here. I know we aren't supposed to be here. I say as much to Karen, but she brushes me off with an arrogant gesture of her hand and tells me to pose. I'm shivering with both fury and fear as she snaps the photo and looks down at it. I'm still seething, but Karen's face looks confused, almost afraid. Her hands tremble slightly as she points the phone toward me. There are bright, ghostly orbs all around my head. We enlarge the picture. It almost looks like there are faces in the center of the orbs. There's something alive and terrible about them. It's the booze, I say, but there is no confidence in my voice. Karen says she feels dizzy and puts her hand against the wall to help her regain her balance. The lights flicker and it seems like each time they do, the room gets darker. My voice trembles as I tell her to take another picture. Certainly, without the flash, I'll be practically in the dark. The orbs were just a trick of the light. Nervously, she nods and agrees. I look at the camera. The tension in my face is palpable. We both look at each other, holding our breath. Karen looks down at the photo. Her eyes widen at what she sees. Hands shaking, she drops the phone. We both bend down to pick it up, but the screen is shattered. When I ask her if it was the orbs again, she just shakes her head 
and refuses to say anything more. The lights flicker out completely, and when they come back on, everything has changed. As though we're in a new dimension. There are tables and glittering 1920s lights. The place is decked out like, well, like there's about to be an award ceremony. The entire room has blossomed into the ghost of the Hollywood past. We need to get out of here, Karen says to me. I nod in return, but I don't know where to go. Everything is so bright and oppressive that I feel completely disoriented. It's like being in a nightmare where everywhere you turn is a hall of mirrors, a glittery cavern of phantoms. Heavy, clunky footsteps echo through the hallway. They sound like they're coming from all directions, but we're too scared to look around. We can feel them coming closer and closer, louder. They're coming for us. Karen starts to cry, begging and pleading for a way out. We're disoriented. The room is glittering. Spotlights rove this way and that, as though searching for the dead. But when the spotlights find us shaking in the middle of the floor, they stop. We feel exposed, vulnerable. They know we're here. I feel a tap on my shoulder and turn around. There's a man in a black tuxedo inches from my face. He looks at me expectantly, as if he needs something from me. Somehow, Karen has snuck away in the confusion. My heart is racing. He breathes on me, noxious, cold breath. Something about him feels inhuman, and it makes me dizzy and helpless. I feel rooted to the ground, feet stuck, head throbbing in desperation. The man keeps coming closer and closer. I beg him to stop, but his brow is furrowed in great consternation. He's determined. I hear him whisper, help me. I close my eyes as he is about to press his body against me. A cool blast of air shoots through my body. I open my eyes. The man is no longer in front of me. I whirl around and see him walking away from me, approaching the stage. I feel my body again, as though freed from a trance, and I sprint to the doors. I practically fall on top of Karen, who is standing in the open corridor, stricken, staring blankly up at the mezzanine. She looks glassy-eyed, haunted, as if locked in her own portal to the past. She whispers that she's never believed in ghosts, and now she doesn't know if she'll ever stop seeing them. After what I just encountered, I feel the same way. I follow her gaze. There's a man in a white tuxedo playing the piano up on the mezzanine. The man takes notice of us gawking at him. He stands up and starts to bow. But before he can do so, I grab Karen's hand and we sprint out of there, not stopping until we reach our room. We collapse on the floor. Everything is modern, normal. The link to the other dimension is closed. 
for now. The Man in the Tuxedo is a well-known apparition at the Hollywood Roosevelt, and his fancy get-up and signature expression often makes people wonder if he attended the first Academy Awards there. Was he nervous that he might lose? Did he lose? Another apparition is a man that plays the piano. He also wears a tux, but his is white. No one has been able to communicate with him, and what his intentions are remain unknown. Is he perhaps still looking to be discovered? The Blossom Ballroom is well known to have a spot in it, measuring only 30 inches in diameter, that remains 10 degrees cooler than the rest of the room. Bright, blinding orbs appear next to people in photos. Lights of the past, still glowing today. They have tried to analyze how they could have appeared, but they appear even without using the camera's flash. Nor are there reflective mirrors in the Blossom Ballroom. They're just mysterious, unsettling lights. Perhaps these are the ghosts of people who sought the bright lights of stardom. Now they are stuck permanently, trapped in their broken dreams. Not everyone who comes to Tinseltown looking for fame and fortune finds it. The Hotel Roosevelt was not known to have paranormal activity until after major renovations in the 1980s. In 1984, the hotel embarked on $12 million worth of renovations that took an entire year. And after that time, it was as if this shook the dormant spirits loose. Ever since then, the hotel has been riddled with paranormal sightings and interactions with everyone from celebrity ghosts to disembodied spirits that appear dressed as paupers. People that were too poor to stay there when they were alive, but don't want to miss their chance to stay there in the afterlife. Things started to go bump in the night. Your ensuite coffee machine starts dripping, rattling. Luggage gets knocked over. Your bathroom sink faucet turns on and off at will. Who are the spirits causing these incidents in the night? There aren't just additional guests at the Hollywood Roosevelt. There are additional employees as well. Staff has reported seeing the ghost of an African-American cook in the kitchen and an etheric clarinet player in the cabaret. Even the ghosts of celebrities still linger in the hotel's halls. The Hollywood Roosevelt has become just about the most star-studded haunted place there is. Montgomery Clift and Marilyn Monroe are among the most notorious sightings, but comedy queen of the 1930s Carol Lombard's ghost has been spotted on the 12th floor, where she used to stay with her husband, legendary Gone with the Wind actor, Clark Gable. The spirits of the hotel are many, and they're everywhere. They yearn to perform and impress. After all, the quest for stardom never really dies. Once a paranormal investigator caught a voice saying on an EVP device, someone died here. But nothing more is known of this incident. Maybe someday, more spirits will make themselves known and share their story. 
A stay at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel is sure to be one of two things. Either a brief glimpse into the luxury of old Hollywood glamour, or a visit to a world of ghoulish nightmares and broken dreams. The only way to find out which yours will be is by taking the risk and booking a room. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. A new episode comes out every Thursday. Listen to all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy Haunted Places, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Gina Machusek. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>